Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Durock, and so many of us are used to talking to healthcare professionals about cancer, but not usually about their cancer and their partner's cancer. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. We have four brilliant guests joining us. Mari was a gynecologist whose job meant the whole world to her when she was diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer at 31. And her partner, Barbara, is a surgeon and he shares what it's been like for him to go to work to fix other people in similar situations. But the person he really wants to be able to fix is his wife. And we'll hear from Simon, a paediatrician who was first diagnosed with testicular cancer at 34 while his wife was pregnant with their first child. And right now, we welcome back to the podcast, Hannah, who's a GP. Welcome back uh, to the podcast. Um, Can you tell me where you were when you were first diagnosed? Uh, Yeah, so when I was first diagnosed, um, I was at work. Um, I was halfway through my afternoon surgery. I'm a GP. And I had a call put through to me by the reception team um, from a consultant. And I thought it was about a patient, um, but it actually turned out to be about myself. The background to that is that about six months prior, I'd had an MRI, a brain MRI for um, unilateral tinnitus. I didn't hear any news and I stupidly thought no news is good news. I should probably know better than that. And then it was just as the world was kind of being turned upside down from the first wave of COVID. And then my world was kind of flipped sideways um, from this phone call um, saying that there was something on my brain scan. And he sort of said, if you know anyone working in neurology, I'd contact them ASAP. And I was kind of like, "Uh, okay. Um, I was stunned, um, absolutely stunned because I wasn't expecting the call. You know, I wasn't in the the zone where you're expecting kind of good news or bad news. I just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't on my radar at all to the point where kind of I I sort of said, thanks, thanks for your time. Thanks for contacting me, but uh, I better go now because I've got a whole surgery of patients to see because I just didn't know, uh, you know, it just knocked me so sideways um uh, and yeah i didn't know whether i was coming or going when you said that you're in the space of expecting to hear news about a patient but mm. instead you heard news about yourself while in that headspace and then your response to it almost was to behave like a doctor and yeah. and you know attend to your waiting room of people um mm. and also in the I hear that the doctor said to you, if you know a neurologist. Yeah, so it was kind of that assumption that because I'm a doctor, that, you know, I can just make a few calls, get it sorted and so on. And I was kind of like, well, surely you should just be treating me as though you would treat any of your other patients. He was kind of a bit all over the place because he just discovered this result that he'd sat on for six months and... You know, and and he didn't quite know what to do to move it forwards. And um, as luck would have it, I, you know, I do have a number of friends who work at, at the hospital 
hospital and I was able to kind of make some phone calls and I then had a call on my mobile from one of the consultant neurologists who then kind of got things moving, got me referred up to King's and and so on. But um, yeah, it was that kind of assumption that because I'm in the uh, because I'm a doctor and I'm in the system that I can just sort of click my fingers and make things work, which is is not not the case and not what what how you want it to work no. for you as a patient. You just want to you want to be treated the same as everybody else. Absolutely. I mean, you're a human receiving news of a brain tumor. You can't doctor yourself, can you? Like you need no. you need that support. Hannah, can I can we go to the second time that you were diagnosed? Because you mm-hmm. were at work the second time as well, is that right? Yeah, so the second time, uh, it was about five months after I'd had the brain surgery to reset the tumour. Um, and I noticed some dimpling in my skin on my left breast, which being a GP, I know um, it can be a red flag for breast cancer. So I spoke to my GP, I got a rapid access referral to the hospital and was seen very quickly in the breast clinic. And it was Monday morning and I had ultrasound and some biopsies. And then the appointment for my results was kind of fr- Friday, yeah, Friday lunchtime. And my husband and I, we worked together um, and we just went between morning and afternoon surgeries um, to, to get the results. And I was kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, it's not going to be breast cancer, you know, because what are the chances? And I didn't have it at that point. I didn't have any family history or anything like that. We found out it was breast cancer and then, yeah, came back to to work to finish the working day because I think uh, you know that's what you do we're sort of on autopilot to just crack on and just continue so yeah that's where I was. Do you think that sort of delayed the processing of the impact from working initially in that way or after that day did you go okay you know what I'm going to give myself some space? It was two days before I turned 40, um, actually, and um, I planned a, a huge big party for my 40th, which we still kind of went ahead with. But I did tell people about it. And I think in terms of my own processing, I don't know. I think when you first get diagnosed, you you just kind of go into this sort of autopilot. You just do what you're told to do by the consultant or whatever. And certainly with the breast cancer um, they identified it was an aggressive type and I was in, you know, I was having chemotherapy before I could sort of blink. So you just kind of get on with what what needs to happen. Um, so I think I only really kind of started processing kind of the effects of having had two primary cancer diagnoses well after I'd had my mastectomy and my radiotherapy and, and so on. And it was only kind of after that that it really sort of hit me. At the point that it really hit you, had you already gone back to work? Where did work factor in for you? Did it have an impact on? So when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I, I mean, I, I continued to work. Um, and, I, you know, I worked up until kind of the day before I was due to start chemo. And then I had about a year off um, because I had chemo then surgery then radio and then I needed another year of chemo after that and so it was only really towards the end of that that I went back to work but 
because I work with my husband and because I was a partner in the surgery, there's there's kind of no escape from it because <laughs> my husband will, will come home and and talk about it and, and so on. And because I was still kind of responsible for running the business, yeah, I was still going in for meetings and so on. It was still sort of, I still had a foot in the door. And can you tell me about the signs that were up in the waiting room at your office? As I say, I was a GP partner um, and I worked in a small surgery um, with only two other GPs, one of whom was my husband. And um, I'd been working there for nearly kind of 10 years. So the patients knew me very well because they'd known me and my husband and, and so on. They'd you know, seen me have my last baby and, and so on. And I thought for that reason that I needed to give some information as to why I was going to be off sick for a prolonged period of time because I knew that people, if if I didn't, people would draw their own conclusions, um, you know, which would be weird and wonderful, I'm sure, and um, or they'd be asking Johnny, and um, so so we decided to kind of put a short message out um, on a sign um, on the door of the surgery just to say, you know, sadly, I was having treatment for a brain tumour that, that I was very much looking forward to returning to work. And then, yeah, I mean, I was kind of two months back at work and then we had to put it back up and uh, say, you know, unfortunately, um you know, I, I was, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer, but, you know, we kept it positive and again said, you know, I was very much looking forward to returning as soon as possible. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't stop patients kind of quizzing Johnny, my husband, um, about how I was. And um, one patient even said to him, oh, I, he- I heard your wife died. <laughs> to which he was like, mm, no, she's very much alive. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it's. I think when you're the doctor, people sort of don't necessarily see you as being kind of just a normal human being and they sort of lose their filter a little bit um sometimes when they talk to us um which is fine when you're playing the doctor but if they're talking about something that's personal to you that can be that can actually be really hard yes I can, oh, I can so see that. There's something so public about it and having to disclose in that way and sort of manage things in that way, but also so personal and people, I I almost feel a little bit of, I don't know if entitlement to sort of like know things because they probably have a closer relationship with you. Just the nature of going to the GP and having seen someone, like you said, for years. So when you did go back to work, how were those conversations? It was really hard, really, really hard. Every consultation, you know, started with them kind of sitting down. You get the head tilts, you get the kind of, how are you, doctor? You know, and I, you know, and it's like being, you know, you're back at work. You're wanting just to crack on with life and be kind of back to doing what you've always done. And it's like every 10 minutes, somebody's coming in and saying, oh, you've been ill, you know, it's like a punch in the stomach each time because you're, you're just immediately drawn back into that. So I've, I found that really tough. I practiced like a little pattern of I'm fine, 
which I would say, even if I wasn't, you know, um, I'm fine. Anyway, we're here to talk about you. How can I help you? Just to kind of shut them down and divert them back onto, onto kind of talking about what they come to see me about. But it, it was, I found that really difficult. Um, and actually now I've, I've moved, I've moved surgeries for a number of reasons, but, um, I'm now working at a much bigger practice where in a different area where nobody know you know that well my colleagues know but nobody none of the patients kind of know what's happened to me so i can just be you know dr bryant's the the new gp and that is lovely you know it, it's been like a breath of fresh air so oh, i'm so glad to hear that because yeah like being reminded every 10 minutes that is intense and having to have that conversation and having to have that patter, like you were saying, and develop that. I'm going to bring Simon into the conversation here. Simon, you work as a paediatrician. And do you ever have sort of times where you're thinking about do you disclose um, what you've been through personally when not to? Um, how's that for you, Simon? So I've been through testicular cancer. So once in 2004 and then once in 2018. And I've obviously been through surgery and chemotherapy on both occasions. I work at King's College Hospital, which um, uh, treated Hannah. Um, and I hope, I wish her the best. Um, we're a, what's called a POSCU, a paediatric oncology shared care unit. So I work with a lot of children um, who are going through cancer. It's It's interesting with the the parent-child dynamic in that situation because most of the parents, if not all the parents, would happily swap places with their child and wish it was happening to them and not to their child. But sometimes it feels right to to say to them, look, I've been through emo and um, I came out okay, I guess, at the other end. Sometimes it helps them uh, and they feel like a fellow kindred spirit um, in terms of you know, someone who's been on a similar journey to what they're going through, but other times you can you can see that they're in they're almost in too much pain. They're too it's too intense for them, and it's not appropriate. So you need you need to judge and make sure it's the right thing for them. It has to be for them and not for me. Um, and um, but yeah, yeah, I think it it does help sometimes. I can really hear and I could see Hannah nodding as you were talking there. You know, there's something in that very specific relationship, isn't there, um, between sort of patient and healthcare provider where it's like how much humanity <laughs> comes into that space on, on both sides. And it varies from patient to patient as well. And, and Simon, how was it for you to hear about Hannah's experience? Yeah, gosh, um, what a journey. I can really relate to that um, need to carry on around the time of diagnosis. Um, I was in the middle of a run of night shifts um, when I was first diagnosed in 2004. So I was a registrar in intensive care doing research at the time. And I was kind of doing research and full-time intensive care. It was pretty full on. And, um, and I kind of felt this lump. And I kind of sat on it for a few days. I wasn't sure, wasn't, you know, I was going to go and get it scanned, wasn't going to go and get it scanned. And finally I thought, okay, let's go and get it scanned. So I was post nights. I was in the middle of a run of night shifts. And I took myself down to ultrasound and just said, look, I think I've got a lump. And of course, I didn't need to make an appointment or anything. They just scanned me and confirmed that it was 
panther. And um, and I said, oh, this is really inconvenient. I'm I'm in a run of nights. And um, and they just said, yeah, who's your boss? And um, and they picked up the phone and called him and said, uh, yeah, your registrar is not working tonight. And um, find someone else, which was great because it took that pressure away from me. Uh, yeah, I, and I got on with my boss at that time extremely well. He's a yeah, absolute gentleman. So, but yeah, having that person intervene for me because my brain wasn't you, you, your brain just suddenly stops working. And, and all you think about is what you're going through personally, but then probably more importantly, you think about the effect on your family. I was dreading telling everybody in my family, and I'm sure that anybody who's been through cancer has had that feeling where you focus on others rather than yourself to start off with. So, yes, yeah, so I completely relate to that. And your wife was pregnant at the time. Yeah, so she was about 28 weeks pregnant at the time. I'd called my mum to come round in the middle of the day, which she thought was a bit odd. And because uh, I wanted to tell them both at the same time. And so and also wanted somebody there to help and support my wife, um, Katerina, depending on how the conversation went, as it turned out. But you know, both of them were obviously incredibly supportive and um, just you know wanted to know what the next steps were. But yeah, so it had a bit of a shock on her. And then when our baby was born, she was quite sick. So she was born post-term and had meconium aspiration and kind of breathed in some poo. And she had this condition called persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, where she was nearly tipped off for ECMO at one point. Um, but then she turned the corner and rapidly improved. And then um, I had no hair. just remember feeling the day, the morning after she was born, I walked outside at, um she was born at St. George's and I sort of looked up at the sky and just thought, God, if you wanted to give me empathy, you could have just sent me on a course. Anyway, our baby was absolutely fine. It was discharged seven days later and she's at university doing great. Well, I am glad to hear that, that she's doing great now. Even the way that you frame that is, you know, like, oh, I could, I could have done an empathy course. Yeah. I didn't need to live it. Um, the tables have been flipped and that yeah. those roles have just massively shifted. And how did you deal with the feeling that the cancer would come back? So testicular cancer, while it's the most common cancer in young men, it's still a very rare cancer. It's like one in 250 men get it. But once you've had it, you have about a one in 20 chance of getting it on the other side. I always had it in the back of my head that it was going to come back. And you know, my oncologist was like, oh, come on, stop being such a pessimist. It's still unlikely to come back. And I, I even talked to the oncologist um, about just having another orchidectomy on the other side and you know getting rid of the the thought that this was going to come back on the other side. This was after I'd completed treatment and after five years of follow-up. But he said, um, no, you know, I think it's a bad idea, persevere. And I think he was right, if I'm perfectly honest, um, uh, because you know, I diagnosed it very quickly the second time around. Um, I knew what it felt like and suddenly felt this bizarre feeling on the other side. And I pretty much knew what it was, what it was as soon as I felt it. In fact, our dog diagnosed it because she she trod on me on my my nether regions while trying to get herself comfortable in oh. front of the television, and I thought, hmm, I know that feeling. Anybody who's been through cancer um, is is looking over their shoulder. You know, it is a feeling that we we all have. Um, it, it, I think some people cope with it better. You know, I feel more comfortable now that you know that I can't get another one <laughs> um but obviously you 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 kind of think well 
the amount of CT scans and chemotherapy I've had now that I'd be at increased risk of um, some sort of blood ball malignancy. But anyway, I'm fit and fine. But you do constantly look over your shoulder. Yeah, and you and you work um, with people on a daily basis that have cancer and. Yeah. You know, so it, it doesn't feel that far away. Um, no. Yeah. Thank you so much, Simon. I'm going to bring Mari into the conversation here. Mari, how has it been for you to listen to Hannah and Simon? What struck me um, in Simon's situation, a bit similar to mine, is how the, the personal aspect of your baby being unwell and things, your personal life, and being a paediatrician as well, being your job, and all mixed in and then on top of that having cancer is just an unbelievably difficult balance when the professional and the personal all intermingles into one and you lose the boundaries of which is which and who are you know what's separating it out and I had a similar experience I was a gynaecologist and had bowel cancer but it spread to my ovary um, and that's how I was diagnosed it was the ovary that caused the problem actually um, and I lost both my ovaries over time. Yeah, it was bowel cancer spread to ovaries. He's a bowel surgeon. I was a gynecologist, the pe personal and professional. It was like there was no escape from it ever um, in the mind. Barbara is your husband um, who's yeah. sitting beside you right now. Barbara, how did you initially receive the information? Like, did you have your professional hat on initially? It's extremely hard, actually, because you, you don't expect it to happen to you, to yourself or to your family member. And I remember when I was going to play a squash game, uh, Mary called me from um, Blackpool or sort of from Thameside saying that um, please don't go somewhere and I just need to um, to speak to you. And anyway, she came home and showed me a scandal and uh, and that. And, you know, she's saying to me, I'm concerned about this. And I say, I, I say, oh, it looks it looks quite OK. And. Initially, when this uh, thing happens, you you feel like you want to protect your family member. You, you you go you still go in a bit of a denial, despite the fact that you're a doctor yourself, actually. And you know you know that you would see it in someone else, and you say, "Look, you know, I'm really sorry, but this is unfortunately this is what it is." But when it comes to your own person, it's just um, first of all, it's unbelievable, it's painful, and as a consequence, you just feel like you know I just want to protect that person, actually, and it took the consultant surgeon to tell me that um, you know it's not a very early bowel cancer that Mary has. Mary has got a stage four bowel cancer, and until I heard those words, um, you know, I was still trying to like protect her. Like, say, like it's impossible. It's, it, it's not going to happen. She's young. It's, it, it's unlikely. I think the other thing that threw it off slightly again like Hannah and Simon I was in work when I found out um I hadn't really had any symptoms as such from the bowel cancer surprisingly it was only when it had already spread to my ovary and I had a huge melon-sized cyst on my ovary which had clearly broken or torted ruptured or whatever and I I was in work doing an on-call and I developed a severe sudden belly pain and I had a yeah, an acute abdomen and sort of got, whip, well, I quickly whipped over the scanner <laughs> over my own belly, saw this big cyst and then whipped myself off to A&E as a result of that. And then it went very quickly from 
from being fit, well, healthy, 31-year-old in work to being in any with an acute abdomen with a very concerning looking ovarian cyst, which in itself was worrying enough. I thought, okay, it's ovarian malignancy. Um, this is not great, you know, in that moment, but it all progressed within hours from thinking I was completely healthy, 31-year-old, about to become a consultant gynecologist, to within hours being completely on the opposite side in my own hospital, lying on the the, the, the beds I used to see patients in, and I were, it was me who was in it, and it was a kind of out-of-body experience almost, I was, and it turned out that it was actually a bowel primary that had already spread to the ovary. So the, the news was just getting worse and worse, like a snowball, very rapidly falling down a hill. Yeah, so that's when I'd, I was in with a &E. I'd called Barbara and was like, um, I don't think you should go to your squash match. There's something going on. He was like very surprised and shocked because I'd gone to work completely fit and healthy and well that morning. I mean, it's always a shock, but something about being in your place of work where you're on one side of the table and then all of a sudden you're on the other side in the same place and it's your colleagues that are now helping you, which is a yeah. very different relationship to your medical team for, you know, for a lot of people that don't work in a, in a hospital. Do you think that the way sometimes you were given information was different because you were a doctor? Obviously, because you are a doctor, there is this mutual understanding amongst the medical community that we all know the words and we know the meanings behind them. So you do tend to talk more in medical jargon, which is fine, actually. Um, I accept that and that doesn't really bother me because it's like speaking to someone in their native language. You know, in a way, you've got that shared language that you use. and That's fine, completely appropriate to use medical jargon and cut to the chase and talk about statistics and hard facts because I understand what it all means and I don't mind that at all. But where I have struggled a little bit is um, on a few occasions, I've had bad news broken to me, like the fact that this was not ovarian, it was a stage four bowel, or that things had progressed at various stages um, in a very harsh, brutal manner, I would say, um, because um, they see me as a doctor, not a person. They see me as a medic, not a human being with thoughts, feelings, dreams and aspirations that have just been crushed. Um, they very much see you as a doctor, a medic, and that's all that you're about. That's all you're reduced to, the doctor, you're the doctor, but it kind of gets lost and forgotten that you are a, a human being with a real heart and feelings and all the hopes for your future that have just been dashed and uh, a major, major life-changing event has happened to you despite and, and and that has the same impacts emotionally as it does on any other human being it just happens to be that I'd, I'm a doctor by job but I have the same emotions as any other person with any other job in the medical community maybe you're seen as oh you're a medic you understand this so let's, yes I understand it doesn't make it any less painful or hurtful or upsetting although I understand it in fact sometimes it makes it worse because I I'm painfully aware of the statistics associated with my cancer and its prognosis, and I can't get that out of my brain. Like, it's in there. It's information that's in there, whether I want it in there or not. I can't choose to be blissfully ignorant. The facts are there, and those numbers are rattling around in the back of my brain, and sometimes knowing is good, and sometimes knowing 
too much knowledge can be a bad thing as well. Oh. It makes you more anxious, maybe, because you worry about all the ins and outs of things. Yeah, the impact of that, the, the impact of that, those words, and almost kind of thinking about that, like, humanness, to then flipping to be on the other side, but then almost other doctors thinking that you still have that protective coating, um, that you're still in that doctor headset instead of in that human mm. place of, and you just put it so, with so much impact, Mari, of like, yeah, all your hopes, all your dreams, all your life, because, and living with that uncertainty that you now have, and you're no longer able to work. And how is that when Barbara goes to work and comes home? Um, how is how has that changed the dynamic between you? It's difficult because obviously I, I I could still work. I guess at the minute my my treatment's quite intense, so I've chosen to medically retire. Initially, I was diagnosed twenty fifteen, and I had a period of lots of surgeries, chemo's, interventions, and wasn't able to work. Was out of work. For a while but then I did go back to work um when I went into remission I went into remission I went from stage four to no evidence of disease which no one ever thought would happen but in that moment I went back to work again when I was well enough to work I went back and then my disease recurred again so made the decision that now I'm going to medically retire and call this a day and reprioritize and look at the other aspects of life that I need to look at rather than just work and um, there's a lot of other things that are important and, and, and needed and I need to focus on them at the minute and that's okay. Um, but yeah, Barbara being a surgeon, me not working at all and you being at work. Yeah, I think the dynamics change quite rapidly. And Sometimes, I mean, I found it very hard to, to adjust to them very quickly. Um, before all this happened, I guess we used to go like, work and come back and probably talk about our work discuss you know let's because that's our life and then and then unfortunately when Mari couldn't work um it, it meant that me talking about work was extremely painful to her uh, and while it's something that we used to do beforehand it took me a while to understand that actually although I'm trying to have a conversation with her and trying to uh, you know ch shift her mind from whatever she's thinking actually it's not helping because um, I'm still talking to her about things that are very, very painful to her because you know, she's, she's about to be a consultant and and that's got taken away from her. And then, um, and then I'm like reminding her of, of those things again and again, basically. So dynamics change very quickly. And I mean, some people might, might recognize them very quickly. For me, it took me a while to recognize that and it's been challenging. <laughs> so yeah, we, we tend to try and compartmentalize work a bit more and and just um, in our time together, we try to talk about all the other things that we're doing in our life and where we're traveling next. We plan lots of little adventures and travels and, and we had, and we got a sausage dog and <laughs> we talk about the dog lots and we, we, you know, we have found so many, I don't know how I fit a job in uh, with all the stuff I'm doing in between, quite honestly. So. I know that you're off to Finland to go look at the sky. Um, Hopefully see some northern lights, yes. I've just had week. chemo today and we're hoping I recover from chemo in the next few days and then we're off to Finland on to take another item off my 
list of things I'd like to achieve in this life and see and do. And I think the Northern Lights would be magical and I'd love to see that. <laughs> I suppose the one good thing about having a doctor right there beside you, though, is that but, you've yeah. got that uh, a little extra pair of eyes. Um, yeah, I've got a 24-7 doctor with me, right? <laughs> like, how lucky am I? Thank you. So what I would love to do is to hear from each of you. I've got one question. If you were to go back in time to when you were first diagnosed and give yourself just one very short piece of advice, what would it be? I'm going to go to Simon and then I'll come to you, Hannah. I think what I would say, if I could go back to myself in 2004, is just be really kind to yourself and to um, to not kind of have overwhelming expectations of how you've got to cope with going through the the treatment and just be kind to yourself. And, and uh, you know, I kind of rushed back to work after about three months and it was, you know, six weeks of chemo and surgery. And then I was kind of had a month to recover and then went back. I think if I was to go back and chat to myself, I would take longer. Mm. and make sure I was properly healed um, physically as well as mentally. I think physically I was kind of okay by the time I went back, but mentally I wasn't really ready. And the same thing the second time, I think just to be kind, to really take all the love and support from people around you that you've shared it with um, and, um, and, you know, allow time to recover. I love that so much. And I imagine so many people that work in your field that do have such motivations, such great intentions. They're, you know, working for their patients. They're working, you know, for their colleagues. And often there can be so much pressure to just keep going. That's really great to hear kind of, yeah, if you if you could give yourself that advice, it might be to maybe take it a little bit easier and be a bit kinder. Thank you, Simon. Hannah, do you have something that you'd like to tell yourself? This might sound like a bit of a cop out, but I'm going to sort of echo what Simon said, because I think when we train as doctors, um, you know, it, you, you kind of step on this roller coaster of medical school and then you do your junior doctor jobs and then you get on to a you know a training rotation in the hospital and then for me I've then stepped out of the hospital and so your life as Mari um sort of said you you your life becomes very sort of I'm a doctor and that's my identity and this is who I am all of a sudden that's kind of you know you're you're off you can't work and that is stripped away from you and you do end up kind of sitting there thinking or well, who am I when you're not working for me I I really felt like I lost part of my identity and I really like what Mari said about kind of discovering other things that are there in life and do what Simon said give myself more time actually to kind of think about what else there was to life because no one's no one's um inexpendable is that the right word so no you know life goes on the surgery carried on without me and feel as a doctor oh I've got to be there I've got to look after my patients I've got to do this and actually you know they cope Everybody coped, giving myself a bit of time to, yeah, recover, get in the right headspace, um, would have, I think, been been good. 
Thank you, Hannah. And Mari? Very much pre-cancer, my self-identity was, I am a doctor. And I didn't really know anything beyond that because since I've been five, I've been wanting to be a doctor, being a doctor, doing studies, doing it, and that was very much, didn't have time to explore who I was as a person or what my interests were or um, what else I could potentially do in life other than being a doctor. And while I absolutely loved being a doctor, the advice I would give myself at that moment of diagnosis is probably, you might not believe this right now, Mary, but in nine years' time, you're going to have a happy life despite not being a doctor it's just a different life than you envisioned you imagined but it's still a happy good life that's fulfilling that's got purpose and meaning it's just got different purpose and meaning i do volunteering for shine i raise a lot of money for charity i've campaigned and got nhs england um treatment break rules changed on drug funding for certain cancer drugs which affects thousands of patients every year so I can help people in other ways. Also, it's okay to, to change your mind about your job or reprioritize or change your direction in life as life changes. Live your life your way. Embrace change as it comes and um, sort of deal with the hands that you're dealt with rather than wishing you'd been dealt different cards. Like deal with what you've got and make the best of it and take the positives and find new purpose and meaning. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a number of different people when uh, thinking about doing this as a, a podcast episode. And, you know, one of the things that came up for people was that sometimes their brain didn't work in the same way as it did before. You know, I spoke to a nurse who had been an ER nurse, you know, and she said, I can't hold information in my brain the same way as that I used to. So she had to take a step back from front face nursing sort of to, you know, be more on the teaching side. And so, yeah, it's definitely a big impact. I do want to hear from Barbara. Do you have something that you wish that you could have told yourself when Mari was diagnosed? I think that as a caterer, um, there's a couple of things I'd say to myself. One is be patient. Things will fall into place. Be patient. Don't panic. Because in, in my nature or in our nature as doctors, sometimes you, because you want to help person and you, you do this day in, day out to other, other people. So you start to like panic and uh, do things hastily. So be patient. Things will, will, come into, uh, into the position. And the other thing which I'll say to myself, which I had to say to myself a few days, few years down the line actually, is to keep smiling. Because I lost my ability to like smile because I was seeing Maddie in pain all the time. And I was thinking like, it, would, it wouldn't be nice of me to, you know, like smile and be happy around her basically, because I don't know how she's feeling basically. But what I've forgotten all of this is that actually, you know, her going through all that, chemotherapy and surgeries and all that it's probably going to be only possible for her to see my face smiling the way it used to be beforehand. Her seeing me miserable is actually going to be not um, productive at all actually so and it prevents me from going into various kind of different mental health issues basically so, it's, so yeah there's always a couple of things I'll say to myself as a, as a carer that be patient things will be okay and uh, yeah smile. I want to say thank you to 
all of you for having this chat today. I know that other healthcare professionals listening to this will have gotten so much out of listening to all of your stories. And I think what's really important is for patients to also think, what could my doctors be going through? You know, and I think that that isn't always thought about. And we can both think about like that dynamic of when we go to the doctors, getting to be a bit more human in that space, especially when having to deal with cancer on either side um, and on both sides, as you've all shared. So thanks to Hannah. Thank you. Bye. And Simon. Thank you, everybody. Good luck. Bye. And Barbara. Thank you very much for inviting us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. And Mari. Thank you very much. It was was nice chatting with you all and I hope um, it helps anybody listen in any way. For all being such wonderful guests today. If you want to find out more about Shine and what we do, and actually there's quite a lot of healthcare professionals that come through our programs and um, come to our events, go to shinecancersupport.org. And thank you, as always, to the amazing radio facilities for sponsoring our podcast. And if you enjoy this, please give us a review, give us a rating. It massively helps other people to find us. Thanks. Till next time. Not your grandma's cancer show.